Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed. Science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry experts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the reality of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your hosts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez. Hello, everybody, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Jeff Gaddison to the podcast. Uh, he is the Chief Division of Orthopedic Plastic Regional Anesthesia at Duke University, and he's the driving force behind the Duke Regional Anesthesia and Acute Pain Program, and you can find them as hashtag DukeRap all over social media. Amazing videos, and uh, thank you for coming on the podcast, Dr. Gaddison. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much for, for having me. It's a real, uh, real treat. Oh, it's, I think it's a treat for the listeners to get to hear from someone, you know, who's definitely a known expert in regional anesthesia, definitely out there trying to educate everybody, uh, you know, into the benefit, the benefits of regional anesthesia, newer blocks coming out. I mean, that's, I think it's really admirable and you should be commended for putting that effort in. It is huge. And uh, everyone in the anesthesia community knows about it. I appreciate you saying, appreciate you saying so. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a passion. <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah, and I, I think I think we agree we're on the same page about how we how we feel about regional anesthesia and, and the benefits and what it brings to our patients. So it's a, it's an easy sell, I think. It is an easy sell, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about your background and you know where you are today and, and what you've been doing. Yeah, uh, so like you, I'm uh, I'm a Canuck, so I was born and yeah. born or <laughs> born and raised in. Uh, in the Great White North uh, in Ontario, and uh, did my medical school up there at Queen's University. I uh, did some training at, at uh, in Toronto as, as a resident, and then switched to um, a program in New York City that was host that was a host program for the New York School of Regional Anesthesia. And uh, my good friend and mentor um, Admir Hadrick was was there, and uh, so I wanted to, to you know learn from him. And, and at the time, it was the Nysora was becoming a real thing uh in in the educational world and uh so i went there finished my residency there and and then uh just kind of stayed on stayed in new york for a few years uh with a brief i spent 18 months in uh australia right after training oh, that's uh, awesome. my, my, my first job yeah uh which was fun before we had kids and a mortgage and a car and a dog and stuff <laughs> <laughs> um and then came back and then in 2014 we came down to North Carolina. We have four kids, so it was. Uh, we needed a place that was a little more sane than Midtown Manhattan to raise our family, <laughs> and uh, and this has been great. Been, we loved living here and working at Duke. That's a great story. I, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to Doctor Hedzik about regional anesthesia. You know, uh, just yeah, even text message, and he's just so available because he's so passionate about it. It's amazing. Exactly, it's infectious. I mean, he's <laughs> living. Well, we're working with him for for twelve years. It just it it can't help but rub, rub off on you. The uh, the passion and enthusiasm. Yeah, he's a it. legend. Yep, absolutely, hundred percent. So how did so? Well, it's pretty obvious, I guess, how you got involved in regional anesthesia. You went to <laughs> the New York School <laughs> regional anesthesia section, uh, and how I know you've been promoting it online. What sort of stuff have you done since you've been at Duke specifically um, promoting regional anesthesia and expanding that part of the specialty? So it's you know I think I think there are still some big gaps and I, as I taught um, continue to teach Nysora workshops uh, with Admir around the country and, and other places it, it becomes obvious that hey there's still a lot of people that don't have access to high quality um, instruction and not everybody can can fly to New York and, and make a workshop uh, over a mm-hmm. weekend so so we kind of decided. Um, that we could address it um, by creating some content and specifically some instructional videos that, uh, you know, are about five or six or seven minutes long, e- easy enough chunk to bite off and, and not have to sit there for an hour watching a lecture, um, but but hopefully contain enough uh, tidbits and, and, and pearls that someone could take that and, and begin to learn how to do the technique. So, so we started that a couple of years ago, and, and uh, it's kind of grown from there. 
Yeah, I think the, uh, I mean, I, most people I know either use one of the, one of two apps, the Nysora app or the BlockBuddy app. Both of them are pretty good. Nysora does a really good job of giving you that bite-sized information on your phone, quick review. You don't do every block every day. Sometimes you have to review them. And for people who don't have, as you said, the opportunity to just go to a course on a weekend across the country, this gives you the the ability to learn it right then and there with all the information. We're just in such a technology age now that you can actually do that. It, if you've got a base in blocks, I think now these apps can actually allow you to expand your block repertoire like oh, you I never to- could. I totally agree. Yeah, that, that just-in-time learning has been really cool to, to see, especially the trainees that I work with. <laughs> we'll, you know, we'll, uh, I'll talk to a, a resident the night before. I mean, he's got a plan for for our patients the next day and, uh, and they'll come in the next day prepared. And say, yeah. We just, we just watched, uh, you know, your video on X, Y, or, or Z and then, <laughs> or the Nysora or the whatever app, but there's, I mean, there's a number of them out there, but, uh, that ability to just sort of quickly connect and, uh, to something, some educational resource and get that information at your fingertips right away is awesome. Oh, it's huge. I mean, it, it's huge for patients. When I first started anesthesia, I'm in my, I don't know, uh, 13th year, 12th year, something like that. And when I started, there were there was nothing. The only thing there was was Nysora Online, and the webpage didn't really have a lot of videos. So you were left with books, and you really kind of needed somebody to say, yeah, yeah, I know that's the picture, but when you look at it, it's quite different when it's a patient and it's yourself. I know. The pictures are always perfect in the books. And so, exactly, uh, I know. It, it, Patients don't show up, uh, you know, at perfect BMIs and able to stay perfectly striped for you. <laughs> so um, the apps, I think, and the videos online, like the ones you're doing and putting out on Twitter with Duke Rap, are hugely helpful because, you know, now you get to see someone manipulate the probe while seeing it on the patient's neck or, or wherever, and then also seeing the image as it's happening. And that has really been, for me, it was huge in being able to take on blocks. I may have been a little bit more concerned about thinking, Oh, geez, that seems risky. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, nothing will replace sort of, you know, direct teaching and be able to put my hand on the probe and say, here, just shift it a little bit to the left. And there you go. There's a picture you want to get Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But uh, if we can get as close to that as possible in in a video format, that that's a, aspirational goal, I think. Oh yeah, it really is. I mean, you're right though, that, that mentor, we, we take, um, CRNAs uh, to our, to our practice where we train, you know, the coming from the program where we train them in, in, in regional anesthesia. And sometimes you grab the probe and move it a millimeter or canter it or tilt it. And all of a sudden everything looks great, but they were in the right place. They just needed that little thing that comes from experience. Yeah, totally. Uh, and that, and that aha moment on their face when they're like, Oh, okay, now I get it. You'd, yeah, if I yeah, if exactly. I if you if you hadn't been there to show me how to do that tilt, I never would have. I'd be struggling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So true. That's awesome. So, in your guys's practice, what kind of blocks do you think you're doing the most generally? You know, it's really changed, Mike. It's it's um it, it, when I started when I was training, like there were I don't know eight or ten blocks that we did. Yeah, you know, we had ephemeral. Nice. You did an axillary, you know, interscaling and stuff, and ultrasound really. uh has changed everything and all these fascia plane blocks that have come around, um, are really taking the place of, um, epidural specifically. So we'll, you know, Duke is a place that traditionally had a lot of, um, reliance on epidural analgesia after most abdominal surgery cases, which was great. I mean, I, that look, I, I, I think epidural is the gold standard for, <clears throat> for pain control for abdominal surgery. And, um, but it came with a cost, right? So the the, the hypotension that we we saw with them was was just frustrating. Surgeons and us and you know patients weren't getting out in time. So we've been doing a lot more rectus sheath block. Rectus sheath is one of my favorite blocks. So so great for those midline mm-hmm. incisions and laparotomies. X laps. Yep. yep X laps. A, a lot of tap blocks. Um, ESP has, has exploded. So you know. The versatility of that block, um, you know, we do it for thoracic cases, for abdominal cases. We're not doing it so much in the cervical and sacral regions, but it's been described. Um, and so, so yeah, those those have really come along. But we're still relying a lot on the, the old standards, too. So every foot and ankle case gets a, a popliteal and a adductor canal block. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of uh, adductor canals for knees. We're doing a lot of... Uh, the hip surgery has changed a lot too. So we, 
you know, we started doing femoral blocks uh, for hip surgery, which was, which was good. It was a kind of a partial success. It never really got mm-hmm. the whole thing. It's just but, a piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then we sort of switched to fascia iliaca, um, which seemed to be slightly more targeted and, 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 you know, got a couple more nerves. So you, that was better, but you still dealt with the motor weakness and especially in the last two years or three years, we've really had a lot of push from surgeons to get patients up and out the same day. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we switched to pang blocks for, for hips at Duke and, and that's been, <clears throat> that's been a game changer. So that, that, you know, zero motor block, hopefully. And, uh, and, and roughly equivalent analgesia to the fasciliaca. So that's, that's been a win. So yeah, seeing a, seeing a trend towards blocks that spare the motor fibers, but still provide equivalent or near equivalent analgesia. For sure. Well, I mean, we're seeing that because of the, I think in our practice, you know, we have a couple of hospitals, but we also have a few ASCs. And so we're seeing that push toward outpatient total knees and total hips where those patients need to walk. <laughs> you know, the plan is the plan is they get up and move. So, you know, you're doing a total knee, you got to spare the lateral femoral cutaneous. They need to be able to move and fire that quad. Oh, yeah. So adductor canals and we'll do, we're, we're either doing IPACs or popliteal plexus blocks. Uh, for yep. the back of the knee coverage. And then for the total hips, we're doing pangs for the same reason. We, we did the exact same transition, femorals, huh. fascialiaca to pang. And the fascialiaca is great in that it's hard to not get it right. But if you give a high concentration and a half decent volume, it's a femoral nerve block. <laughs> so, exactly. Right. And that's a yeah. problem, right? Yeah. And you don't yeah. know what that volume and concentration is in that patient until you find out the hard way. That's that's yeah. the other issue. Exactly. Yeah. We have. Um, <laughs> it's kind of reassuring, Mike, that we have the same problem. <laughs> hey, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the surgeon's giving you that side. I look like, oh, yeah, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 Yeah, I, I found the pang much better just because if you can, as long as you get under the fascia, um, yeah. then you never get any motor really. And yeah. We've had no problems with them except for when we first started them and we were above that fascia layer and it would migrate up to the femoral nerve. But that was only, that's the learning curve. Yeah, totally agree. That, exactly. Like the times that I've heard from colleagues or, um, you know, friends around the country that have had, hey man, I had a motor block with this pang. It's, it's, when you drill down on it, it seems that it was, Oh yeah, my local was in the fibers of the muscle. It yep. wasn't truly underneath. But uh, I, I well, the other thing I like about Peng is it's an easy block to teach. Because you're hitting a you're hitting a bone. Yeah, that's great. To, There's a backstop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not trying to hit. You're not trying to find this like really nuanced fascial plane. Like the fasciolac in an elderly person, I found. I was like, yeah, is that the fascial plane, or is that the fascial plane? Sometimes it can be hard to see. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Hard to see on the ultrasound, even looking for that bow tie look, you know, you get that difficulty finding it on, I, I, I agree totally. I almost yeah. find it easier doing the two pops than yeah. ultrasound sometimes with a fascia right. which is exactly the opposite of what I think, but it seems to be true with that one block. It's odd. Yeah. 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 Agree. Yeah. Great. Well, you guys are doing a ton of stuff. Um, how many blocks you figure you guys are doing at Duke a year, if you had to guess? Uh, well, it's increasing um it, it, you know my day used to be when i started in 2014 i the way we work it is we have we'll have two orthopedic rooms and do the blocks for those patients and then you know whatever else sort of comes up and there wasn't a whole lot else that came up we do the odd block for a thoracic case or something like that but now most of my day is running around to other operating rooms doing these special plane blocks at the end of cases or Right. Um, for rib fractures and that sort of thing. So it's, it's a good problem to have. I, I don't know, man. We're, we're up in the uh, uh, high thousands for sure um, a year. Well, you've got you've got to be. I, I mean, our yeah. group, we're probably doing um, about five to 6,000 blocks a year. That's uh, great. At our, wow. at our yeah. practice. And we're doing about, we're only doing about 17,000 to 18,000 cases. So we're doing a lot, <laughs> a lot. But mm-hmm. that has exploded because of, how it's exploded in general surgery, just like you talked about, you know, QL blocks, tap blocks, ESPs, rectus sheath blocks, PEX blocks, you know, all these yeah. opportunities that really didn't exist when I was training. I mean, you were totally, you totally pegged it there. There was like five to six blocks that you had to know. And after that, <laughs> no one wanted to hear from you about blocks, <laughs> you know, right. the, the femoral, the ax, the interscaling, maybe a, if you were real fancy, you might do a infraclavicular. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's exactly. that all you did. And now yeah. it's just, it's just so huge. 
And it, I think it's just great for patients, frankly. I mean, it's huge. I, totally. You know what the, the really cool thing is? I was telling somebody the other day that when I started, I'm sure you have the same experience, we had to fight to get surgeon, surgical buy-in for blocks. It was like a, a treat of the surgeons that, okay, I guess you can do a block in this patient. But now we've got surgeons that hear from their, you know, their friends or whatever, and they'll come to us now and say, oh, um, we really need you to do this block so we can get this urologic patient out the door quicker. We're in a good position now. It's a good time to be a regional anesthesiologist. It really is a good yeah. time. And I think yeah. I think that once they realized that the five to seven minutes it took to do a block really didn't impact the length of their surgery, and in addition to that, resulted in them not getting phone calls at night for pain yeah. issues, yeah. that's when they saw the benefit to the patients and to themselves. Yeah. You know, that was it's always the big battle, right? It's something new. Now you can't do a case that we typically do blocks for if you can't do a block. They're not gonna no one's gonna want you you do in those cases if you can't do the block for them. That's yeah. where we've come to at this point. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. And I think yeah. what's what's cool oh sorry, I was saying what's cool oh. about that too is that um people that have those skill sets now are in so high demand. Oh yeah. Um like I, we're finding that our fellows that they're looking for jobs are, are just, you know, the world's their oyster. Cause they, every hospital system and, and ASC wants people that can do blocks. Absolutely. Well, it's come down to, in some ways for facilities, it's come down to efficiency. The patient yeah. is out the door faster from PACU because you don't have to give them as many narcotics, you know, rolling into that sort of ERAS, low opioid use kind of, um, process that we've moved into. And then on top of that, you know, patients don't have to stay the night in the hospital necessarily. They could go home like they couldn't before with totals. I mean, yeah. I think it's, it's certainly been a huge, and it's a big selling point for surgeons. You know, are they going to go to hospital a, where everyone does a general anesthetic for every total knee and total hip and everyone stays overnight on a PCA for two days, you know, <laughs> or are they going to come to hospital B where we do a block we do a spinal for the total knee and we give them a little propofol. They wake up and go home in a half an hour, an hour, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's just yeah. a huge, it's just a huge win for patients. Totally. I think that that's really, I mean, it's really coming down to that. And obviously there's an economic side to it too. I mean, facilities make a lot of money off of the facility fee for blocks, you know, an interscaling block on the facility side is about 600 bucks for Medicare. So you know, where you and I'll get paid a, a 90. <laughs> so there's definitely a, be <laughs> yeah. a benefit to the, and we're fee for service. So I'm really aware of this stuff. So there's definitely a benefit to the, uh, to the, the hot, the facility, uh, you know, yeah. and that helps the bottom line, which allows us to get the nice ultrasound, right? Yeah. That, yep. That's, it's all in our benefit ultimately, but, and for the patients, but uh, yeah, it's been huge. It makes an I mean, easier conversation in the, in the C-suite. It makes to, an easier conversation yeah. to sell that ultrasound. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I always want the newest one, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. So, yeah. So are you guys doing like uh, typically doing dual guidance, nerve stim and ultrasound where you have motor components or, or are you not? Yeah, so I, I do like that actually. And and in cases, the fascia blocks are different. Fascia plane blocks are different because uh, yeah, it doesn't I matter. Feel like I feel like the risk for <clears throat> for nerve injuries a lot a lot less there. But um, especially for interscaling and popliteal mm -hmm. blocks, so that risk is they're, I mean, they're the highest risk blocks we do in terms of uh, persistent nerve injury. Um, I do like um, to use dual guidance. So. And it's, it's, it's been a real funny thing. You know, I, I trained prior to ultrasound and had to sort of learn it on my own. Mm -hmm. And there was this like shift from, um, as soon as people realized they could use ultrasound, a lot of people just sort of dumped nerve stimulation as a, it was rapid. It was rapid yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's a, there's a, uh, <laughs> in our department, there's a, uh, a display case of sort of anesthetic, um, you know, old equipment. There's an old, copper kettle vaporizer and that sort of thing and some someone as a prank put a nerve stimulator in there and oh. said nerve stimulator you know <laughs> 1980s to 2000 um oh. and uh but but here here's the thing i think that it offers us um good information that you can't get from the ultrasound and it's, and it's complementary so you know you see the image on the screen and you may or may not see where your needle tip is exactly oh. and that physiologic confirmation and uh, and, and so, uh, of the, where you are makes a difference. So we'll oftentimes just put it on, set it and forget it at say 0.7 milliamps or something like that. 
you know, drive the needle down. And if you don't get a twitch, that's cool. Um, that's great. That means you were never close enough to probably <laughs> right. cause injury, right? But if you do get a twitch and you're like, wait a second, maybe that needle tip isn't exactly where I I thought it was. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that, uh, that's how we use it. Yeah, I had the exact same experience with you. And really what it came from was a discussion I went through this process where I'd done all these nerve simulators and then I was using ultrasound. I thought I was really good at this ultrasound thing. And, uh, I ended up having, I didn't have ended up having a nerve injury. It wasn't me, but I thought it could have been the block and it was an inner scaling, you know, your highest risk. And I had talked to Dr. Hedzik about it and he said, well, did you use nerve nerve stimulation? I'm like, no, he said, <laughs> he, right. said he said, why not? Do you not have it? No, I, we have it. And he said, what, what negative do you get out of using nerve stimulation? Yeah. There's no yeah. negative. It's a sum zero negative, but there's more information. So why would you not use it? I mean, besides the legal side of that, it, there's just it. And that was when I realized my hubris had gotten ahead of my capability, <laughs> right? You know, like I thought I was so good at ultrasound. I didn't need this nerve stimulator thing anymore. And it was a rapid shift, just like you were talking right. about. Right, right, but right. The truth was that was the last time I ever did that. And what I recognize now is it doesn't matter how good you are at ultrasound you, if you haven't gotten to the point where you can't identify a nerve on somebody with ultrasound, it's because you haven't done enough of them. (laughs) That's the reality. You know, it just, it's not always as simple as it looks. And that nerve stimulator is going to keep you out of trouble. Yeah. I totally, I totally agree. And it's it's cheap, you know, um, it's virtually free once you have it, it's just the cost of EKG dot and, uh, it gives you information you don't get. 100%. Ultrasound. Yeah. Have you guys used the pressure monitoring stuff at all? You know, where you put between the syringe and the needle? We we do. And, and again, not for every block, but for selected ones that we think might be at higher risk. And I, I right. think that in the same vein, it, it offers a little bit of information that either the ultrasound nor the um, nerve stim can offer. And because, mm-hmm. you know, nerve stim is not perfect. You know that. So you can you yeah. can be touching a nerve and not get a twitch. And so Especially if they're diabetic, right? Right, right. So, but that that ability to to gauge the the pressure on in the that you're applying to the tissue, and, and more importantly, keep it below say 15 psi, right. is important because we know that that's associated. High pressures don't always mean nerve injury, or don't always mean a, a dangerous needle nerve uh, relationship, but it could. So, but yeah. the reverse is true. If you don't have high pressure, you're extremely unlikely to cause a mechanical nerve injury. So, um, so that's like a D dimer. A positive isn't always positive, but a negative is always negative. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so that's how we use it too. And and it's, the other thing we found was, um, we had these, um, uh, there's a couple of different devices that you can, you can purchase to, you know, put in between the syringe and the tubing. But either way, when we when we put them in there and we handed the syringe to say our block nurse or our resident or something, it, it, um, every single time they would go, "Hey, this thing's broken. I can't, I can't, you know, inject on this." And we realized, "Oh my gosh, you were, you guys were injecting way harder than we had expected." So, yep. um, so it is a good thing because it's not out, it's not it's not Mike McKinnon uh, usually pushing the the, the syringe, right? Or, or me, where you have it's, a sense of what the pressure should or shouldn't be, right? It's it's oftentimes someone who doesn't have that experience, and uh, you know, God forbid, it's the orthopedic resident that's uh, <laughs> got the syringe and <laughs> uh, hammers it in, in two seconds. <laughs> that's but, right. Uh, but it's a, it's a good little break, I think, to to get people to realize. Yeah, it's, it's again an additional piece of information, and I I totally agree with you. I mean, I'll push all my own drugs in blocks for that very reason unless I'm with selective people. And the reason why is because I've taught them exactly what the pressure should be. And I know they know, and they've done enough of them. But if you get someone who doesn't, they just don't know. What do you mean hard? Is it hard or not? You know, to push it in, what does that mean? It's so esoteric. So that pressure monitor gives you a gauge you can see from right across yeah. looking at them. It's that objective, you know, measurement. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. And then, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot about is blocks under general anesthesia. We all do it for pediatrics because probably the benefit is greater than the risk. A pediatric patient is just not going to stay still, you know, <laughs> when you're putting a needle in yeah. anywhere. Yeah. But with adults, a lot of people, and I'm seeing this on social media more and more, they're like, oh, yeah, I'll just do the block under general anesthesia. What do you think of that? 
Well, I think there's, I, I think you can splice out a couple different ways. I think that there's, there's definitely something to having a patient awake and able to respond. Um, because, you know, sometimes you'll, when you do hit a nerve with a needle accidentally, there will be some response. Now, it's not always, it's not always perfect, right? So, so yeah. you can, you can hit a nerve and not get a response. So to the extent that we can do it um, with a patient able to respond to us, I think that's a, a useful, um, <clears throat> you know, monitor as, as subjective as it is. Um, at this, on the flip side, though, we we do do blocks routinely um, after the spinal's gone, and we'll go and do all our total knee blocks uh, more distally, knowing that we can't, we can no longer rely on that patient feedback. Right. And I think what's, what's changed the landscape in our thinking, at least my thinking um, for that, is, is the use of ultrasound, nerve stimulation, and pressure monitoring. Because those, those objective monitors have, um, I think I, I rely more on those to keep me out of trouble than the subjective patient response. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. Some patients yeah. are going to be stoic and they think pain is normal with the block. You don't yeah. know what you're going to get, you know, that, or they, maybe they just don't have it. it I, yeah. I agree. I'm not sure where I am on it. Honestly, I, I think like in a patient that you don't think is going to do well awake, I think it's probably safe to do it with all those other additional things asleep. I'm not Agreed. sure I do interscaling. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure. I, that's where I get a little bit like, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the one that I think, uh, you know, there's that bad case series of Mm-hmm. Four four intra cord injections that was published twenty years ago or so that I think yep. scared scared a lot of us. It gets your attention. From, yeah, it does. Complication based medicine. It's uh, it's a real thing. <laughs> it's a real thing. Uh, yeah. Um, but again, I think with the advent of these objective technologies and monitors, uh, I my thinking shifted a little bit. And and every yeah. like everything else in anesthesia uh, that we do, it's, it's a risk benefit ratio. So for the trauma patient that. I think, man, this guy is going to have a rough time if I try to do all these blocks with him awake. Maybe it is better if I do it once he's under GA. Yeah. Yep, I agree. So, Are you guys doing a lot of uh, continuous catheters anymore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we, Duke's always been a, a, a big catheter place. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, one of our one of our CRNAs, uh, Dave Gleason, give Dave a little shout out, who's, who's now retired. <laughs> um, living the good life, living, living the, good the life. living the good life. Yeah, he's he's on, he's on a rocking chair at a porch somewhere, and enjoying <laughs> a enjoying a nice cool drink. But uh, <laughs> he uh, he had a hand in in developing one of the um, continuous catheters that Bebron ended up uh, manufacturing. So, oh, wow. so we we all yeah we always had a big catheter presence at Duke, at Duke and we we continue to do so. Uh, I think you know, catheters are great. They they like titrate the um, the block, you turn it on, turn it off, slow it down, crank it up. Um, mm-hmm. and especially for, especially for trauma, I think it really helps to, to have, you know, I'll have a brachial plexus block uh, catheter on one side and a popliteal on the other side and that sort of thing. Yeah. They're useful. It, we, we, we don't do a lot only because it's resource intensive. So, um, you know, in a small facility, our, our biggest facility is a hundred beds, 109 beds. Uh, you know, the nurses are not going to have a lot of experience with them. And then you're going to get calls all night long. We don't have someone that's there 24-7. We have 24-7 call, but we take call from home. So troubleshooting them was a was a constant problem, even though yeah. it wasn't it was just resource intensive. So how did you how do you manage this one 24 hour call guy? That's how we do our call. You know, one of us is on call 24 hours. Uh and uh and, and be able to do the cases, respond to OB, ER, ICU, and manage these catheters that the nurses are not comfortable with. When the patient yeah. says they feel a tinge, no. you know what I mean? Totally, totally get that. Yeah, no, they are resource intensive. And if we didn't have an army of fellows and <laughs> residents and, and yeah. uh, NPs, and it, it, it would be tough. It would be tough, um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and think, that, yeah, go yeah. ahead. I was going to say that and the extenders have helped too. So there are cases now where I'll have a, a block, say, at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I, I don't want that patient to, that block to wear off it three in the morning, mm-hmm. the next morning, say it's a wrist fracture or something. And but I'm not quite sure I, they need a catheter. So um, using sort of local with dexamethasone or dexamethotomidine um, right. has helped us to sort of, you know, squeeze a bit more out of it. Yeah. Get, get a, get a bit more, a few more hours out of that block and get them through to the next morning. 
So the, the use of those adjuvants and extenders has helped. Yeah, we've been doing, we do a lot of those. We do a lot of Decadron, a lot of, a lot of Dexmetomidine in our blocks. And the, de- the Dexmetomidine, I've noticed a huge difference adding that. Yeah. I'm never quite sure the dose to give them because when I read the first couple studies, they were like, oh, one, one, one mic per kilogram. And then I found bradycardia was a problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, bradycardia and, and One sedation. mic per kilogram is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, think- somewhere in that 40 range, 40 mics is probably pretty good. Yeah, and I, yeah. I do seem to get a significant increased length of time yeah. uh, from that alone. And Decadron as well. We've had, and let me ask you this, since we, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit about peripheral nerve injury. We've seen, we've seen um, a couple studies out there, and they're very small, about foot and ankle surgery with popliteal and adductor canal blocks, where Decadron is being somewhat implicated in not more nerve injury, but prolonged nerve um, recovery. I guess is how they put it in the like months where they're having, you know, everybody to some degree or another patients, it's not uncommon to get some numb areas after a block. It just happens. And the surgeons mitigate that for us for the most part because they know it's typical, but it recovers within a couple of days, maybe a week, you know, these yeah. people are having it for months. Are you guys seeing any of that in your foot and ankle surgery stuff or podiatry case? Yeah, no, I have to admit, no, we haven't seen that. Um, part of the problem with, thinking about these things is that you have to know the quality of your data too, right? So we, we aren't calling our patients at, at a week oh, or two yeah. weeks or three weeks. And, and I know that patients sometimes have these subtle neurologic findings that they just, mm-hmm. they're just happy to have had their surgery. And if they have a little numb part, numb, you know, numb part of their foot, you know, they won't, maybe won't report it to their surgeon or their, or, right. you know, or to us. So, um, so I, I'm, I'm convinced that there are more nerve injuries or, per, or persistent neurologic sequelae right. than are than we think um are they serious i hope not um do they most of them mostly go away over time i think so but yeah but um but i haven't seen a signal with the dexamethasone that's interesting yeah i'll a- after the podcast i'll send you that paper that i have just so you can get a look at it um, yeah but it was interesting for us to see just because we we had noticed in in one in one subset of patients with only one surgeon specifically, so that makes it kind of difficult to know if that's what the problem is, that there yeah. was some persistent numbness over time, but only in a small number of patients. And we're questioning, you know, is it the tourniquet? Is it because you got the tourniquet down on the on the the calf or is it or should it be on the thigh? These are you know, these adductor canal blocks we're doing for total knees and we're not having this problem. Why is it happening? on the medial ankle on the, you know what I mean? It was all these things that kind of came together and then right. this paper just kind of popped up in my feed and I thought, Oh, <laughs> well, maybe I'll look into that. So I'll yeah. send it to you to take a look at. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Thanks. Yeah. Are you guys doing, and it's from Canada. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Are you, yeah. Are you guys doing a lot of Exparel at all? We are using a fair amount of it. And I think, uh, it's a, a really interesting drug, right? That, um, mm-hmm. the whole idea that you can encapsulate, Bupivacaine and in, in cool. liposomes that slow release over time. I, I remember when I first heard about it, I was I was really excited as a as a another, you know another technique or tool that we could use. Um, we're using it mostly for you know it's only approved for um, interscaling and um, infiltration of fascial plane blocks. So that's that's right. mostly what we're doing it for. But um, um, we, have, we are finding it, so it has replaced our catheters for interscaling. Um, we're okay. doing all our total shoulders with catheters, but problem with interscaling catheters, I'm sure you find the same thing when you've done them is it's not a lot of tissue holding the catheter down. I mean, it's only a centimeter to that. They plexus, displace so they, very easily. Yeah, yeah. They pop out. And then we had patients that, you know, drive home to Virginia the same night <laughs> and then call us and say, Oh, I got out of the car and my catheter got yanked. And now what do I do? And I'm well, you can drive back. I'm happy, happily put it back in, but, you know, so that that helps that problem, and we are seeing, you know, about sixty to seventy-two hours with um with the interscaling, which has been good. Yeah. Um, are Are you finding it consistently longer than your typical bupivacaine, ropivacaine with ad, adjuvants like uh, dexamethamine and decadron? In a I think shot? I think so. Yeah, I think we're you know with the I call the <laughs> I tell the residents that bupivacaine plus dexamethasone plus epi is supercane. So I'll say, hey, mix up some supercane <laughs> for this patient. Um, and that that usually gets me about 36 plus, mm-hmm. somewhere in that range. Um, I don't know if you find the same thing, but 
the for the shoulders, mm-hmm. we are finding that it, it, the X-Brog plus Dutivacane mixture gives us about right. 60 to 70-ish. So it's, it's, it is longer. It is longer, yeah. Yeah, we do a lot of... Um... We do a lot of like uh, the Presidex Decadron mix. We, we've kind of gone away from actually using Epi, and I, that's how I originally trained was putting Epi in blocks, only because of a lot of the discussion of, oh, you know, if you were to inject intraneural Epi, what would be the results? I, I mean, right. I think it's mostly theoretical, <laughs> honestly. But yeah, because uh, yeah. once you inject anything intraneural, I think the result is bad <laughs> generally. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So it's not going to matter what it is for the most part, but we kind of went away from it and then, you know, just went with the, you know, mm-hmm. the dexamethamidine and the, and the decadron. But overall we're seeing somewhere around 30 to 36 hours for most of our blocks. Yeah. A single shot, which that's is, great. yeah, it basically supercane. <laughs> it works really well. <laughs> have you, have you seen any new drugs on the horizon that you're excited about yet? Um, I think, I think there are, you know, I think, think Xperel has, um, been around now for almost a decade, and I and has been sort of a lone wolf in that space. But I think I I know there are other companies that are looking at ways to extend that duration. Whether it's um, you know a gel matrix. I know that um, uh, Heron Pharmaceuticals has a product out now that is, a, is meant for infiltration um, by the surgeon into a wound. The same idea. You got butivacaine that's released slowly out of the gel. So I think there's I, I think there's a going to be a few options on the market um, in the next year or two that'll give us, yeah, and most importantly, patients uh, a chance to, you know, experience a long, a long duration. Right. I know there's another one called Enduracane that's has been trialed in Europe and now it's just getting approved. It'd be interesting to see how that does. Similar idea to Xperel, um, hmm. but su- supposedly with better outcomes, but of course, you know, you don't know until you actually get a hold of the thing. Yeah, so, cool. <laughs> Yeah, so there's some cool stuff happening out there. I mean, as long yeah. as there's money to be made, we'll get better drugs. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's right. What uh, What do you think about ultrasound technology? Where are we headed? So, you know, I was I was making one of those videos recently, past month, and reflecting to myself, I can't believe the crystal clarity of the image that I'm seeing um, these days compared to what I what I used to. Uh, we used the fuzz, to the it, fuzzy like, machine that you used to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, um, uh, my friend Stuart Grant uh, always tells a story. He was in the early days of ultrasound. He was, um, you know, trying to convince somebody. Like, look, look, you can see the interscalium brachial plexus. It was pretty. It was pretty darn fuzzy. And the nurse <laughs> kind of leaned, leaned over his shoulder and said, "Are you imaging or imagining?" And, uh, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. No, I think I think that's that's where the I think we're going to keep getting better and better and better. And, and people have, I mean, there's there are manufacturers out there that have you know 50 megahertz frequency probes that uh, yeah. can see like hairs and sweat glands and that sort of thing. So cool, and some 3D um, ultrasounds out there. And yeah, yeah, 3D stuff. I, it's interesting. I've, I've seen and played with it a bit the volumetric stuff. It's, mm-hmm. I don't know where it, its utility will be mostly for procedures. Yeah, it's not like ready you, yet. Like you sure. and me, yeah. Um, but uh, the uh, the other exciting thing is, I think there's, there there are people and groups that are working on um, different ways to enhance the needle visualization. Whether that oh, be, yeah. now we've had beam steering for a while, but even uh, the ability to sort of vibrate that pie, you know, that the, the needle tip with a bit of um, uh, acoustic energy and, and have it show up just Bing, right on the screen. Yep. Um, yeah, there's, stuff a, like that there's a couple be, out there. Yeah. Like the the butterfly IQ, I don't know if you guys hang on to it. I have it. I take it with me everywhere because I do a lot of point of care ultrasound. Yeah. Um, that does a nice job of highlighting the needle in blue, for instance. And there's another yeah. one. Is it my, Maybe it's Mind Ray maybe makes the technology that does something similar. Special needles, special ultrasound, and it highlights the needle. Um, yeah. And that stuff is hugely helpful to me. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, we have a, a Konica Minolta machine that, that does the same. It lights it up in blue. I call it lightsaber yeah. mode. Cause it's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're really, really helpful, especially for teaching. You know, you, if you're, oh, yeah. you know, if you've got the needle, then I'm not worried. But, uh, um, but if um, I'm teaching a new, a new, a new, a new Right, yeah. It's, it's helpful to 
not have to grab their hands. And they- yeah, I agree. It's hugely helpful. I mean, we have, sometimes we got like senior, um, our, we call them our RNAs, but senior CRNAs and then senior, uh, trainees and then junior trainees. And, you know, you get the person who's got the needle in their hand and you're like, show me the last third of the needle. <laughs> Don't yeah. move. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and that's a terrifying moment when you're saying that because you, <laughs> you really want to see it now. So stop. <laughs> show yeah. me the last third of the needle yeah, before yeah. we go any further with this, with right. this game we're playing here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely huge. I, I, I think so. So listen, moving on to the peripheral nerve injury, I think that's definitely a, a pet project of yours. I've seen you've written a lot on it and talked a lot about it. Um, certainly yeah. a concern for everyone who does regional anesthesia. <laughs> yeah, it is. What, what do you think the top three all causes of peripheral nerve injury are? Now that's, and when I say all causes, I mean everything, you know, surgery, tourniquets, casting, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, that, I think that's a really important point, Mike, is that, that not all nerve injury is due to us. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the providers. It's, um, a lot of times it's positioning. I mean, I think that's, that's you know, traction injury from, from positioning or, or, uh, compression injury from a cast, that sort of thing is, is a big bucket in, in all of that. Of course, those are things that we, um, we can control in the sense that we're, you know, taking care of these patients in the operating room and can take care to try to prevent them, but not always. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't have control over the cast after that patient leaves. Uh, I think the thing that I can control the most is mechanical needle injury. So yes. the, <clears throat> there's no doubt that if you, if you touch a nerve with a needle, a sharp needle tip, you're going to cause inflammation. And the, the deeper you go into that nerve, the more likely you are that that inflammation or even the, the mechanical slicing of axons is going to be clinically significant. So to whatever, whatever extent we can prevent needle nerve contact, that's going to help that mm-hmm. portion. Then there's things like chemical injury too. So, you know, we, we know that local anesthetics are directly toxic to nerve tissue. Yeah. Um, and thankfully we have the perineurium, that tough, you know, 15 layer, um, tight junction Keep membrane yeah that protects us from it's like the blood nerve barrier so it's um it, it results in this concentration gradient so that when you put you know half percent dupivacaine next to a nerve the, the axons are only seeing a fraction of that but if you put that half percent inside the nerve that's a that's a big problem and so even though you may you might be lucky with the mechanical stuff the chemical works so i think that those are the, probably the three biggest biggest Totally agree. And I, you know, I specifically asked that question just because I think, you know, if we were talking to our surgeon colleagues, their first reaction would maybe be that, oh, well, there was a, there's a nerve problem and you did a block, so it must be the block. And, and not, not that they don't understand the process or that it's their fault that they think that, but when they, from their perspective, they see, well, you just stuck a needle right next to that nerve. So isn't that a good high chance of causing damage? And the truth of the matter is it is, but not in the right hands with the right equipment. Right. So th- I, I think the chances of getting nerve damage from surgery, particularly anything in the shoulder, you know, is much higher from surgery or at least equivalent at the, at the, in the worst studies I've seen to <laughs> risk from nerve block. Yeah, totally. There's some good, good data out of Mayo Clinic in, in uh, Minnesota that's showing that irrespective of block or no block, the rate of nerve injury after shoulder surgery is the same. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I saw that data and yeah. it's important to show that to surgeons because, they, yeah. you know, I think they need to see that, Hey, look, you know, what you do is dangerous and you know that, and I know that, but what I do isn't any more dangerous, even though yeah. I'm putting a needle right next to the nerve and, or risky, I guess is the, is the key. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And then what do you think, what do you think that location? Like, you know, we, we read a lot about the anatomy. We read a lot about studies, the higher risk of nerve damage in theory, the closer you get to the brachial plexus and there's a higher risk just because of neurodensity, all that kind of stuff. Do you, do you subscribe to that? That typically the inner scaling is probably where the highest risk is and moving down, it gets less. hundred percent. No, I, if you, if you look at the, the two biggest culprits, so that's inner scaling and lateral popliteal, the, the common factor in those two, um, those two blocks is you have a nerve tissue it doesn't have a lot of connective sort of fatty 
extra adipose stuff. Adipose, extra stuff in there, yeah. So, yep. just, so interstellar, you're looking at nerve roots, which are basically monofascicles, just yep. big, chunky fascicles. So if you get inside them, there's nowhere for those axons to run. The, um, the peroneal nerve at the popliteal fossa, uh, as you know, it often looks like sort of two um, big fascicles, or sometimes three, so snake eyes. And again, same thing as a needle coming across from a lateral. If you hit that, there's not a lot of space for that to go. So you're going to impact axons. And um, so I, I have a, it, it, conversely, the tibial nerve in the popliteal is the, is, is, is the opposite. It's got so much kind of yeah. tissue. It's really hard or harder, I should say, to, to cause a, uh, a serious tibial nerve injury compared to peroneal. So I think I put a lot of stock in that in that, uh, you know, location matters. Yeah, uh, I do too. And I think people don't understand that the peroneal is high as, is, is probably as high risk as interscaling because of the neurodensity. I think there's a lot of assumption that as you get away from the neck and go down, and part of that's probably because people, you know, half read those European studies where they're doing, um, intraneural five CCs, two CC blocks in a sciatic, right. you know, and they're not really having in theory, much more nerve damage than anyone else. But the peroneal is different. The second yeah. that splits, it's risky. Yeah, totally agree. Oh, I wish those studies were ever published, those intraneural uh, studies. I know, because you hear about it all the time from people. Oh, well, what about in Europe? And I'm like, well, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> that, that's the answer there. <laughs> and I wouldn't right. let anyone do it on me. <laughs> I think part so, of the problem is that we, we when you start interpreting that, is that you we don't hear about a lot of the really bad cases. Unless, no. So I, I, do some, I do some expert witness um, <clears throat> work for for uh, defending, you know, anesthesiologists and CRNAs, and mm-hmm. and unfortunately, the rate of bad nerve injuries is not zero. It still happens. We just don't yep. hear about it a lot. Um, anyway, that's totally true. I do the same yeah. thing. I do a lot of expert witness work, and a lot of it's regional. And the, yeah. the problem is that never makes it to the light of day to have the discussion about what we can learn from this. Right. And so, you know, the, the biggest benefit of things like closed, closed claims, um, you know, databases is you can look at it and say, what can we learn from this case? But if it never gets there and we don't get to look at it, A, we don't have as accurate numbers as we think we do. And then B, we don't have the ability to learn from it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of that there. And look, let's be honest, nerve, nerve blocks add risk. Mm -hmm. I, I think the risk isn't high if you are trained. Yep, and that's really where the linchpin is. is yeah. Do you have the training? You know, you know. Don't pretend you know how to do this because you watched one video on YouTube and went ahead and did an interscaling block, or went to a, even a weekend course. It's not enough. There yeah. has to be some degree of basic understanding. Like I tell everybody for our practice, we we don't have the time to train everyone how to do every block. It just doesn't. That's just not a function of how many people we have. Six people there a day, right? All all sure. the CRNAs, and so we expect people to come with the basic foundation. So if you can do, yeah. you know, the five basic blocks we basically talked about earlier, yeah. if yeah, you yeah. know how to use an ultrasound, then you know how to do the most important thing, identify the things you do not want to stick the needle in, A, <laughs> keep yourself out of trouble, and yeah. B, identify the thing that you want to get the local around <laughs> and move from there. I can teach the pang block, you know what I mean? I can teach yeah. a QL or an ESP because you got the basics, the foundational knowledge. Um, yeah. But I... I I do think that we do a little, and you tell me your opinion on this too, that, it, you know, if someone comes to a weekend course who's never done a block before, and then they get the impression they can just go out and do blocks on Monday. I think we, I think those courses may be doing a little bit of a disservice for those people because it's not that simple. I totally agree. And, and I, I think we both have experience where we're teaching somebody and thinking, I, I sure hope you aren't sticking a needle in someone Monday and mm-hmm. you at least, at least practice a bit, you know, watching people yep. that, you know. Or if you're going to just do a tap block, because at least there's a little risk. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And and, and, and that's a good point. I, I, make it, I, I take care in when I'm teaching these kind of things to say, mm-hmm. hey, for those of you out here that are just starting, that's amazing. I'm so glad you're here to yep. learn. Start with... Proud of you. Proud of you. Really. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, totally proud. And start with... But, so I'm teaching you all kinds of stuff this weekend, but start with this one. Yep. This is the one that's you can hurt people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the tap block, I mean, you're going to learn the hardest thing, which is utilizing an ultrasound and getting a needle in plane on something that's not flat. <laughs> you right. know, I mean, yeah. And, yeah. and you're probably not going to damage anything. And the worst that's likely going to happen is you, the block's just not going to work because you don't get to the plane. Right. Um, 
and, and that's okay because we're all, that's how we all learned. But th- that block is at least the least risky. The, the one to start with is what I yeah. can only tell people uh, yeah. because it does nothing I can do in a course that trains people like a real person, hand needle, ultrasound, hand coordination. It's way harder than it looks. Yeah. You know, when you see someone experienced do that teeny little movement that makes the interscaling go from some weird shape between two, some weird shapes <laughs> to <laughs> three circles between two muscles. It's amazing to watch that. Yeah. And I that's, agree. that's all just experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's totally cool. So what do you think? I mean, we talked about training is probably the best thing we can do to avoid nerve injuries, right? Training experience, having mentorship. Would yeah, exactly. Yep. Training the, the the more the more training and more education the more people you have watching you as you're as you're developing those skills saying oh you know just try a little bit different and no, I wouldn't aim right for the nerve aim for the fascial plane beside the nerve that those kind of uh, real time feedback things are are critically important um, but I think I think equally important or maybe not equally but also important is the is the use of available monitors like we talked about so. You know, we're all using ultrasound. That's that's fantastic. Um, but using, you know, add the nerve stimulation, add the injection pressure monitoring, just in case. Hundred percent. It's not, it's not going to hurt you, and uh, it may help. More information is good. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't remember a time where I said knowing more about something was bad. So <laughs> it seems right. like it's a it's good additional information. Right. Yeah, right, right. I, I totally agree. And and then you know, staying in your lane is a big part of it too. If, if you're, if you, if you're, if you're never, if you've never done an interscaling, have someone there to teach you how to do the interscaling, you know, yeah. like a tap block is an interscaling. They are not even vaguely the same. And right. so it's important. I think it's really important when you move into risky territory, peroneal, you know, interscaling specifically, I, those are the ones that come to mind all the time for me that, you know, you've got the ability to have someone teach you the little yeah. things that really matter and, and it keeps you out of trouble, makes the patients happy. No one wants to hurt a patient. I mean, it's the, I mean, it's the worst, it would be the worst feeling. And so Absolutely. Yeah. You, know, you really want good outcomes. Have you had yeah. any stories from your practice with uh, nerve issues, either others or residents or where that stick out to you? I've had, um, I mean, you do enough of them. You're going to have something. <laughs> exactly. I can remember one as I think it was my first one, my first nerve injury. It was a, a lumbar plexus block. Uh, I was a resident and um, I'd done it and I felt really great about it because it, it worked and the patient was happy afterwards. And then and then I, I got the message from the surgeon that she had had this sort of burning pain down the, down the front of her leg and everything. And so I called and, uh, and yeah, it sounded exactly like um, a persistent parasitic injury. And, um, you know, we talked her through it and got the, got her on some gabapentin and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, um, I remember feeling just horrible that I caused this complication to this woman who had come in for an elective surgery. Called her every day for, I think, three weeks. And then she went away. And the, the reassuring thing was it was getting a little bit better every couple of days. And, and there uh, wasn't any motor involvement. That's the what, <laughs> Right. There wasn't any motor involvement. So those are the, those are the, I tell I tell trainees those are the reassuring signs right so mm-hmm. no motor and if it's if it's if there's any improvement early on then the chances are it'll resolve yeah, completely. prognosis is good yeah especially within a year it's like ninety nine percent yeah and she was that was the I think that was one of the I think one of a handful of it was my first patient I ever had that gave me a thank you card. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. uh, and I caused an injury in her, but I think it was, it was, it was my obsessive, um, uh, you know, calling her and checking in and the reassurance and making sure but that's key, right? I mean, that's key to any, anytime you have something, an untoward outcome and we're all going to have them and yep. no one should feel that, that, you know, no one should feel that they're, they should quit anesthesia because they have a nerve injury. If they've tried to do everything right and they have one, it's going to happen if you do enough of them. But the key there is to contact the patient reassure, apologize that this happened to them yeah, and keep in contact and just be available. I think that is huge for, besides liability, separate that out. I think it's just hugely reassuring for patients that you care. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, you're not alone. You've, I care about you. I'm, I'm trying to help you through this. I sorry this happened. We 
we did our best and this still happened, but we're going to do what we can to make it right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I, to- I totally agree. When you guys have these kind of things happen there, do, do you got like a, um, a process that you guys go through, like a policy that you follow when you do EMGs, NCSs, MRIs, do they, do the, your surgeons like notify anesthesia within two weeks or a month or how does that all go for you guys? Yeah. So, I mean, thankfully they're, they're rare enough that we haven't got a, uh, a policy that we have to pull out of in every so often. We typically follow the standard sort of guidance or wisdom on when to get um, imaging and, and, uh, and neurologic testing. So if, if it's a, a relatively minor sensory, you know, paresthesia that seems to last beyond the, the duration of a local anesthetic, I'll just take care of it myself. You just say, listen, I'm going to, just like I said before, I'll, I'm going to call you every day. We're going to start you on some, some medication that may help, you know, promote um, or prevent nerve nerve injury like gabapentin. Or Lyrica. And or, yeah, or Lyrica. Yeah. And then, and then we'll, we'll see how it goes. And, uh, and most of the time that's, that's enough. If, if it's more severe um, involving, you know, the whole limb or, or if there is some motor, that's when I, I rapidly get a neurologist involved and mm-hmm. uh, let's, let's get some baseline um, EMGs to, to make sure that we, know what we're dealing with now and then we can at least compare them and the horse is out of the barn at that point unfortunately you can't EMG is not going to fix anything but it's at least you can characterize what things look like now versus you know a week or two from uh, six weeks later so right right so if um, i think what we typically followed is if they have any motor which we've only ever had one in the 10 years i've been in this practice but if if you have any motor we get an emg right away yeah. As opposed yeah. to if they don't, we usually get it at the four to six week range. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It's so far it's worked. Okay. I mean, most, of uh, most of our, our surgeons are, it's a small practice, so we're all friends. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not, it's yeah. not that big. So our surgeons will text us, Hey, you know, I got this lady's got a little numbness on the lateral side of their ankle, but, uh, it's only three days after the first appointment. And I think it's going to go away, but I just want to let you know, which I really appreciate. Oh, totally. You know, I want to know right away. And I want to know how long it lasts. I want to know everything because I want to know if I did something wrong or I need to change what I'm doing. That's why I constantly read your stuff. I constantly watch your videos and, you know, Rodrigo's videos and all those guys out there, because if there's something new that I can do that's better, I want to do that. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 And, yeah. And that's the, that's the best way to be, you know, it, you don't want to be caught up in that phrase because that's the way we've always done things, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the most dangerous phrase in the English language. Right. <laughs> and so you know, you got to evolve. We got to evolve. I mean, anesthesia is evolving on, on a near daily basis. And so is regional. And so, uh, staying on top of it's huge, I think. And it keeps us out of trouble. Yep. Agreed. Totally. Yeah. We, you know, Dr. Gadsden, you've been great and, um, people really look up to you no, I and look up that, to the man. work that you're doing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you're putting it out there. Not only are you putting it out there for, you know, the, the regional videos and the, the publications you've been involved in, but you're also doing incredible music videos, <laughs> which, which if no one's seen them, they need to go on Twitter and find you and find your recent one, your cowboy one, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. And the rap one you did, but you know, yeah, what? Thank, we need more you. of that. We need yeah. more of that because, you know, it makes it fun. Truly. Yeah, we yeah. we we're very fortunate to I'm fortunate to, to work with an amazing team um, of docs and nurses that that all believe in the same thing and awesome and we're and we're doing it for the right reason right and so that camaraderie and and pass and shared passion um, is is infectious and uh, but uh, at the same time it's been it's been a, been a rough eighteen months with COVID and so this it is you know doing these <laughs> music videos has been <laughs> a fun way to. to you know, bond and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, It's nice to blow off a little steam, do something fun. People think that stuff is great. You know, it it gets people excited too about it again. Yeah. We're going to try to do different genres every year too. So uh, so (laughs) watch out for heavy metal coming up next. Yeah. A little Metallica action. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So uh, what would your final advice be to our listeners about regional anesthesia nerve injuries, just in general about regional anesthesia, would you leave, um, for everybody listening, that's, you know, 
looking at this saying, man, this just sounds so awesome and I want to do more of it. What would you tell them? I, I would say, you know, regional anesthesia is awesome and it, it, it mm-hmm. confers so many benefits for our patients. Um, nerve injury is there's, it's not a 0.0% risk, but it, it is relatively small and you have in your hands ways to mitigate and reduce that risk. So do do what you can to um, to get the right training, the right education, and then use the right monitors to keep you out of trouble. And uh, and with, with those good intentions, you will um, you'll always do the right thing for the patient. Oh, that's that's a great final statement. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate having you here. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. It was fun. It was fun. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussions, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 